Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello, producer Matt here with a quick message before we start today's show. Firstly, thank you for choosing to listen. We've been overwhelmed by the messages on Twitter, on Facebook and, of course, the old Media Talk page. If you've stumbled across this for the first time, you can subscribe using the links on our website, themediapodcast.com. So whether you use the latest podcast app or Stitcher or SoundCloud, you can always be alerted to when the latest programme is available. Next week, we'll be launching a crowdfunding campaign to keep the podcast going long term. We have a target, and if we make it, we'll be safe for a good few months, possibly a year. If not, all donations will be refunded, and we never talk of this experiment ever again. Oh, I should say that the Media Podcast is a PPM production and not affiliated with The Guardian in any way. And now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. In today's episode, the BBC is set to cut another 600 jobs in news and radio. Channel 4 reveals how it uses audience data to choose the titles of its shows, amongst other things. And as another local TV station launches, this time in Glasgow, we find out how the others are faring. All that plus the usual gossip from the Media Village. This is the Media Podcast from themediapodcast.com. With us today are two fine media commentators, both deeply involved in their respective industries, up to the neck, I dare say. Uh, we have Paul Robinson, Chief Executive of the Radio Academy. Hello, Paul. Hi, hello. Uh, and also the Managing Editor of the Sun newspaper, Mr. Stig Abel. Hello, hello. Stig. Hello. Uh, now, thanks for joining us. It says in the script, banter. So let's, let's do a bit of that. Banter away. Uh, what, your week in the media village then, as apparently we're calling it. Stig, first of all, what's your, your big takeaway news story from this week? Well, I, it's actually, um, I thought, uh, Alan Respiger talking about uh, paywalls, which is obviously a business model pursued by the company I, I work for, which he, he, he said was like a, a 19th century um, um, uh, model, which I thought was interesting uh, for, for The Guardian, which is bankrolled by a giant uh, slush fund, which is itself a 19th century uh, model for funding. <laughs> And Paul, your week in the media. Well, my week's been very state. I was in India, uh, and aside from that, it was very, very hot, uh, a mere 39 degrees. I, I was um, uh, working for a company called Tata, one of my clients, who are you know, one of the biggest companies in India. And they have a very large broadcast division, service all sorts of com- uh, companies here, including B Sky B and, and Comcast. But I, I went to their conference of their top 250 managers. And, you know, we worry about diversity. And uh, there I was in that room, 250 people, uh, one Western person, me, uh, 249 Indians. 
Indian men, one Indian woman. And no one batted neither. And it felt really weird to me because we're so used to having a diverse workforce. But there it was, 249 men out of 250, and they thought it was completely normal. But we still have all the pressure groups here trying to get more women involved in the industry. And and they just said, hey, they're the top people. They're the top people in the job. So that's why they're there. I mean, it's a view. It's fairly dude heavy in this room at this minute, I noticed. It is. Five people, five men. I think it would be accurately described as a sausage party at the moment. It would. But uh, obviously a meritocracy, may I say. But I think that needs to to change uh, as this uh, this show develops. uh, More more female representation. And we're all looking at Matt, the producer. (laughs) I totally agree. (laughs) Okay, well, we start this week with the BBC. Forbes reporting on Tuesday that almost 600 jobs are to go as part of the next phase of the Delivering Quality First initiative. That figure includes up to 500 jobs from BBC News and another 80 or so from the radio division. Uh, Paul, BBC News has so far survived relatively unscathed from DQF, so is this just a case of delaying the inevitable or is Tony Hall signalling a new change in policy here? Well, I think that um, the interesting thing about DQF is that uh, once Mark Thompson had left, you know, the DQF uh, savings hadn't really been found at that point. You know, all the savings were all front-loaded. And, uh, you know, James is the new incumbent has got to deal with it. Helen Bowden, uh, the previous occupant of the job, did indicate 800 jobs. So it's not as though she hasn't flagged this before. But uh, no, this is catch-up, really. I think what's interesting about this is that the BBC are rightly being forced to be more efficient. But I think now they're really starting to hurt. I think these are actually quite tough savings. They're to make some very, very tough decisions. The trick is, I'm not sure they're getting the external brownie points for this. You know, we want to see an efficient BBC. We want to see a BBC that is hopefully in good shape for the next licence fee negotiation coming up very imminently. I'm just not sure that those who are going to comment on that have realised how tough these cuts are for the BBC. But then publicity-wise, in a way, uh, it kind of helps them, doesn't it, when they're negotiating their next licence fee settlement to have people within the BBC voicing the pain that they're feeling as a result of these cuts? Of course, I think they could voice more pain, actually. I'm saying they're not voicing enough pain. I think they need to actually make more of it. Stig, where do you think these cuts are actually going to come from within news? It's hard to say, and it's one of those things that when they make an announcement, like, I mean, I hate the phrase delivering quality first. As, as a, as what does it mean? It's and, and, and also, and it's, it's are the, they going to deliver quality second? Well, exactly, and how are they going to achieve something better by cutting people? So it, it's slightly, I imagine it must be quite galling. It's if a bit like producer choice. Yeah. under John Burt. It, it wasn't. It and was it nothing be, about producing. And it choice. must be galling if it's your job on the line that yeah. this is being presented as delivering quality, quality first, which is meaningless and sort of vaguely platitudinous and positive for something that is basically negative. I think one of the reasons there's a certain amount of cynicism is this kind of has been announced before and you slightly wonder that they announce a big pr- programme um, in a year's time, will we have seen it uh, being realised? And, and I think for journalists reporting on this, there's that double bind that Papers like The Sun and, and, and other papers like that want to see an efficient BBC, which they think is the, is the giant toad squatting on the media landscape, far too big, uh, sucking in all, 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 the, all, all the potential revenue and the potential uh, opportunities. But on the other hand, these are journalist jobs. And journalist jobs these days are at a premium. People who will leave the BBC, it's not always easy to see where people move on to because the whole industry is feeling the pinch and has felt the pinch for several years. So you should never glory in redundancy and glory in people's jobs. So even even people who think the BBC is unwieldy uh, and inefficient and wasteful, which I think probably is a lot of people, you don't necessarily then want to, to localise that down to uh, uh, decent people losing their jobs. And the other thing about news, of course, is I think if you were to ask what is the BBC for, good quality impartial news is a key public service requirement and one of the sort of the tenants of the BBC. So they're actually cutting really at the muscle here. 
And then there's the issue of, of the management, isn't there? Uh, because, you know, we're talking about journalists kind of on the front line. The, d- the director of news, James Harding, has made quite a few managerial appointments of late. You've got Jim Gray from Channel 4, Jonathan Monroe from ITV, uh, his former deputy from The Times, Keith Blackmore. Uh, those aren't going to be great for morale either, are they? Stick. And then one of these things you get when you try and reduce bureaucracy, uh, you always increase it to reduce it. And when you try and uh, make change, you often have to increase management or you think you have to increase management in order to manage that change and manage that reduction. And I think people do uh, f- find that galling. And the other thing is with the BBC, you can always point to massive areas of waste that aren't about people's salaries. You know, the digital thing that costs 100 million quid. But in anything, you know, how many people they'll be sending to the World Cup, it will be a lot of people. It's right that they send a lot of people, but it will be a very high number and it will cost a fortune. And so with the BBC, you can always point to other things that probably would be better to be cut back before you start axing news journalists. And Paul, in radio, we're seeing a smaller amount of cuts, aren't we? But still cuts. What is there left to cut in radio? Well, I mean, I think there are cuts you could make which were about process, about how you do things. I think the BBC does tend to, you know, hack away at individual programmes and think about doing things differently. And I think that's the harder bit. And they could do more of that. But at Radio 2, we're seeing um, a single overnight show with repeats on um, in the early hours. Um, at Radio 1, we've got um, new shows and some, some big names disappearing. I think these are actually quite significant cuts for those two big networks. And who's going from Radio 1? Edith Bowman, I read. Yeah, Edith Bowman and Mike Davies are the two main names who are going. I mean, rightly so. I mean, Radio 1 is appropriately, you know, targeting a younger audience. You know, there is a point where you say, I have to say goodbye to Radio 1. Ben Cooper's bringing in some new talent, presumably cheaper, but also more engaged with the audience. That's the right thing to do, I think. Nothing, Paul. I'm kind of interested. I've just, you know, started with LBC and sort of seeing it from the perspective of being in a, in a radio programme. You get the sense that the staffing around commercial radio is relatively uh, reduced. It's kind of it's, the, the shows content generate their material with not a massive uh, support cast. People who are there who work really hard is the same true for the BBC. If you were to look at the broadly equivalent uh, shows in the commercial and the BBC sector, would you see the same number of support uh, people, or would it be much more in the BBC? Well, I think what's interesting now is, in fact, that there's um, probably fewer shows that you could actually draw to go to, which you'd say are similar. I think commercial radio and the BBC have actually diverged in terms of what they do. LBC is probably the closest to a BBC type service. LBC, you know, Radio 5 Live, you could argue they're similar types of service which need, you know, on-air people, producers, researchers and so on. But a lot of commercial radio is thematic mu- music services, you know, Capital, Heart, Magic, Kiss and so on, which is very different to Radio 2, for example, where there's lots of speech and that requires lots of production. So I think you're not comparing apples with apples. But the point being, you know, you can look at a mid-morning talk show on a BBC local station, uh, which would have a smaller audience reach than LBC does in most cases, and you're looking at an engineer, a producer, an assistant producer, a broadcast journalist, and a researcher, all to power one scripted presenter, whereas the equivalent in commercial on a talk station, I guess the same as for talk sport, for example, would be literally the presenter, a producer, and if you're lucky, a third person answering the phones. I think BBC local radio is probably the forgotten arm of radio. Let's forget, not forget that BBC local radio doesn't actually sit in the radio division in the BBC, it sits in the news division. Um, and is driven by by news people. Is there a logic to that? Uh, It's always been that way. Uh, It's never been in radio. There have been countless um, directors of radio who have argued that BBC Local Radio should be part of network radio, but it never has been. And if you go to most BBC Local stations, they're using really old kit. You know, they've not been invested in. They've sort of been under-cared for and under-loved, really. And they do need an injection of not only some resource, but also some modernisation. In other BBC-related news, the corporation have teamed up with ITV and Channel 4 to announce fresh investment 
in Freeview. Uh, the money is going to be used to create Freeview Connect, a broadband version of the service that will include BBC iPlayer, uh, but also ITV Player and 4OD for the first time on the platform. And if that sounds a little bit like Uview, uh, that's because it is. Uh, but that venture was a partnership between the broadcasters and Talk Talk and BT, telecoms companies who have, it is alleged, hijacked the service to shore up their wider broadband subscriptions. So, Paul, why do you think the broadcasters have decided to do this now? Well, I mean, what's happened with you? Yeah, you that actually. I was utterly <laughs> bewildering. I thought. I thought it was a very good intro. I know it's a very good description no. of a, a bewildering situation. Well, <laughs> it is bewildering, but actually, maybe I can simplify a bit if I can. Uview was designed to be a service for public service broadcasters. What's happened is pay packages have been added, and set-top boxes have been swapped out to common boxes across all of the platforms: BT Vision and, and, and Talk Talk. And so now the public service broadcasters feel it's not for them. What this is about is getting onto smart TVs. The problem at the moment is if you go and do a deal with Samsung or Panasonic you've got to do a separate deal it's different technology, you cannot port from one smart TV to another now the idea here is that they're going to create a platform which will mean you can get onto any smart TV with one go, Um, doesn't mean the UI is going to be the same, it may look different it'll be the same EPG, it may have a different customised look but the code that sits behind it will be the same, so basically they're creating an engine to enable you to access smart TVs in one go that was very neatly explained, I think. Did that help you, Stig? It helped me a bit, yeah. Um, so but this is, does this mean that in a, in a few years' time, uh, this bit I'm kind of interested in, that we will be effectively consuming television and online services on our TVs in more or less the same way? The assumption is that every TV is going to be connected to broadband yeah. and you will get your TV down the broadband. So the trick then is to make sure you're on that menu because if you're not, you won't have any distribution. And does impartiality then fall away? Uh, no. I mean, the, the, the broadcast codes and all of the requirements for public broadcasters say is that's irrespective of the way it's distributed. Obviously, if you're not effectively you know, a public service broadcaster, uh, you will have to um, – you, you, no, you have no restrictions. So will someone create – sorry, I, I'm, I'm just kind of interested in this. Will someone create a TV show or ra- radio show that is consumed analogously to a, a traditional broadcaster because it's being consumed via broadband that is not bound by Ofcom rules – and will therefore be uh, partial and uh, not objective. At the moment, that is entirely possible. Whether there is a move to change the regulation, I think is entirely likely. Have we just witnessed the birth of a new Sun TV channel is what I want to know. <laughs> you probably, probably witnessed the birth of more people at Ofcom. Well, maybe the campaign starts here for, uh, for uh, partial, independent, free from Ofcom regulation broadcasting over the internet. Or, you, that or you could, you could call it podcasting, couldn't you? But, but yeah. is there not a station called Fubar? There is. Isn't, there that, is. do, isn't that trying to do that? I absolutely, it is. I'm with you. I th- I, I, I say roll back the regulation. Yes. Absolutely, roll it back. <laughs> um, I suspect. Ollie, that you look skeptical. No, no, I please, don't think please. Happen, though. Like I say, I've got a back catalogue here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we do have a tendency to actually overregulate and actually add more regulation in this country. So I, I'm a little bit uh, uh, sceptical it's going to happen. Does this look bad for Uview, though? Stig, when, when Uview was launched and Lord Sugar was wheeled out and all the rest of it, they were supposed to be the great big saviour. It rolled on for years, didn't it, whilst they were developing that thing. It wasn't supposed to end like this, was it, with it being seen as a bit of a... Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. 
They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Figly for BT and talk talk. Well, I, I think it's, I, I imagine it's seen by numerous people as, I don't know what that is. Because it's one of those products uh, that even if you're it connects with the media industry, it doesn't, you're not necessarily grappled with it uh, hugely. And if you're, if you're outside of the media industry, probably uh, not at all. It's probably another example also of what we talked about with the BBC uh, investing in digital products and digital processes. Uh, in a way that seems bemusing to people uh, after the event. And you see, that probably cost an awful lot of money, again, which possibly could have been used to fund uh, news journalism. But we'll all get to see some exciting new uh, characters, no doubt, deployed to advertise this new service in uh, very irritating adverts. So that'll be something to, for all of us to look forward to. There's always an upside. <laughs> OK, thanks to you both. More stories after this. Some other stories from the Media Village this week. A study by eBay suggesting that paying for adverts in search engines has no measurable benefit to the advertiser. Uh, That'll be good news for Google then. Uh, The research conducted by the auction site, uh, as I'm calling them here, with Berkeley and Chicago universities explained that those users who did click on, say, eBay ads, did so only because they were going to go to eBay in the first place. Uh, Stig, by search engines, of course, we're, we're only really talking about Google here. Have they got anything to be worried about? I don't know. Someone's telling me that um, is, is the global market for, for advertising something like 600 or 800 billion, and Google takes 200 billion of that. Wow. So Google is the giant gorilla in this room, and its entire it seems to me so overwhelmingly powerful in this area and its advertising model so well entrenched. If it is taking a third or a quarter of the global advertising spend to itself, uh, it would suggest that that is a relatively secure position. I kind of, it's one of those things that when you search something and an advert comes up, I feel a little, you, you do feel a little bit, well, they just want me to click on that and you mm. might be tempted to go beneath it to, to find something yourself. But it, I think that it, it does work. And if, if you're in a hurry and it comes up, you, you, you're, you're inclined to, to use it. And like I said, it has funded Google going from what was just a mega juggernaut to a super mega unbelievable juggernaut. So I'm sure they're feeling pre- pretty confident. 
Yeah, and internet advertising has been drawing from uh, traditional media, particularly from uh, radio and television. And uh, I guess this will be uh, welcome news to those media who are struggling to maintain market share. What's really interesting, I think, is that um, in this research, when they um, shut down paid for uh, advertising, uh, consumers automatically went to the non the non branded uh, sites. So uh, it's almost as though they they're they're sort of clicking on the paid thing, but they're not really committed to it. And then what was really interesting too was that the only consumers who seem to have any sort of sense of changing consumer behavior as a result of seeing this advertising were those who'd only bought three or fewer items or were brand new signups. So in other words, it sounds like there's a learning process here. You know, you know what mm. you, you know how you're going to navigate, you know what you want, you don't need to see the paid for stuff. And in fact, it doesn't influence your behavior unless you're at the very beginning of looking for a particular item, in which case, yes, first time you're influenced. But also, it seems to me, I mean, this is eBay doing research to itself, you know, how people get to eBay from Google. And so if you're Googling shoes, eBay's going to come up anyway, isn't it? Uh, whereas if you're Googling shoes and you know, Stig's Shoe Shop from Boreham Wood comes up, that's a big deal for Stig's Shoe Shop if it's on the non-paid-for search. And it would be worth them monetizing that if they had an ad. It's a slightly different equation, isn't it, for eBay? It, it is, and I, and I think that's right. The question is, if you would be on page 35 of a Google search, it is definitely must be worth pushing you into yeah. in front of eyeballs. But if you're going to be there anyway, then 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 what, what, what discussion are we having? Because I think my own personal reaction would be, you would click on the third item on that page that isn't the paid for advert if you were going to go there anyway and, and your shoe shop's very good by the way yeah spats are fantastic yeah, if only there were a video version of this podcast oh, no. uh, right next up another station launch this week it's stv glasgow which is going to run from midday until midnight every day uh, as for shows uh, the former miss scotland jennifer rioche that how you say it? I'm going to say it is. Uh, and former Clyde One DJ David Farrell will host the Riverside Show. Uh, the channel's going to be delivered in partnership with Glasgow Caledonian University, uh, which will offer students the chance to work in live TV. Uh, that's got to be a good thing, hasn't it? But Paul, that's, that's five local TV stations now on the air. There should have been 19 by this point, according to uh, Jeremy Hunt's Wildest Dreams. Is this experiment going well? Well, the first thing I thought was really nice, I like the picture of the Riverside guys. We see, you know, the picture of these, the presenters, they do look like they're out of uh, you know made in Chelsea or something I mean they've got you know perfect uh, skin and perfect hair and it's just you know it's like you two it's like you two basically you two LBC presenters you know, everyone, everyone in Scotland looks like that is that, is that yeah, it is yeah, okay so yeah, it, it, healthy, it looks a clean living place I mean, the reality is that nobody knows, do they? I mean, no one has yet made any money. Uh, various channels have come and gone. You know, Channel M in Manchester is one example. This will only work if it's truly compelling. I think Glasgow is interesting because if you look at regional media, it does tend to do better the further you are away from London uh, because, uh, you know, you've got a greater chance of really engaging with that audience. And I suspect uh, that, uh, you know, given it's run by STV, who clearly do know what they're doing and also, of course, can use all of their back office costs. So they're going to use the building, you know, all the journalists, all the infrastructure so they can probably run this on a shoestring they, if they're losing money for a little while they're probably going to be fine with it they probably can cross promote you know so given that ownership they've got a chance ultimately they've got to have programming that people really care about and is it going to be a business going to make loads of money no it's not um, you know you wonder why they're doing it it's really a nice shop window for them but I mean it's nothing to get excited about no one is going to uh, uh, make a fortune out of this and Google aren't going to worry about it it's not going to take money out of Google's pocket well when you talk about cross promotion that's interesting because obviously one's thoughts are drawn to London Live which gets a hefty promotion in the Evening Standard Never. every day. It's funny that isn't it? The highlights <laughs> are always from London Live I, I couldn't work that out. I don't know why that is I'm sure it's objective. Um, and yet you know, we know some of their programmes being watched by fewer than you know, a thousand people 
Stig, have you seen any London Live? Not, not, not an awful lot. It's easy to sneer at uh, London Live, um, but that doesn't mean you, you should. Whenever you I should, turn should, on, it's Drag Queens of London. I mean, that's all I think they've got on there. It's, it is. It's permanent Drag Queens of London. I do think it's it's a very hard ask that they're doing. They don't they want to. They don't want to spend an awful lot of money on it. They want to spend just enough to make it work. The the, the task that they've given themselves, the amount of live news, it's sort of six and a half hours a day, is more than STV does in Scotland, and they have much less to back it up. They're trying to run it off the back end of a, a newspaper. Newspaper uh, office, a newspaper office which has its own challenges with the Independent and the Standard itself. It seems to me fantastically difficult. I, I, you don't want to be too sneery about it because ultimately this is people who are putting an awful lot of creative energy into something with probably very little money to an audience that doesn't really care that much. And I don't want to sort of uh, sneer at that because to me the problem is this was trying to solve a problem that didn't exist, which was is there a niche for uh, local television? And in London, there clearly isn't, because if you want local, you've got the BBC, you've got the Evening Standard, and you've got a load of quite vibrant regional local papers. It didn't seem to me that you were trying to uh, solve a problem. So I, I don't quite see the future in it for, um, for for London Live. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the people involved aren't giving it a good go. And actually, probably there might be some little gems there that no one's seeing. But you look at radio. I mean, in London, you know, the local stations are not really local stations. I mean, they're national stations, commercial radio I'm talking about now. But there are some very good local stations around the country but they tend to be in smaller towns more remote where there's less competition there's less opportunity and they do really well I mean there's a, a fantastic station I was listening the other day in Stirling in Scotland just brilliant and it's all about Stirling just all the time and you can think if I live in that community I will listen to that so I think if this station can be truly Glaswegian it's got a chance except it's going to be on channel 23 on Freeview I was reading London Live is on channel 8 yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a long way down compared to in, the, in uh, England where it's channel 8 but hey you know Finally this week, uh, at a media summit hosted by Broadcast Magazine on Wednesday, Channel 4's Chief Executive David Abrams spoke about 4OD's love of data. Paul, this is about how you have to register to sign in to use 4OD, and then they grab your age and your address when you do so. Apparently 11 million of us have done that. Uh, What do they do with all this data? Well, if you talk to uh, anyone who's doing an online service or a VOD service, they'll use data. I mean, the, the best example are Amazon, where they're absolutely fanatical about it. You know, nothing goes on to Amazon unless they've got data on it. And in fact, if it's, if it's never been released as a sort of DVD or, you know, in another format, they won't even put it on. I mean, in theory, this is very smart. I mean, if you've got data, you should use it. And, and they've got a massive amount of data. So, you know, improving that service is, is a really smart way of doing it. If you know what people want to watch and, you, you know, use that to database and properly segment it, you can uh, make better decisions about what else to put on there. So, you know, it's smart. The question is, will it translate into uh, revenue for them? If I was David, I'd be wanting to work out how I'm going to make money out of that. And that bit is being completely silent on. And Stig, I guess you have a similar thing at The Sun, don't you, where you want to make sure that the data that you're taking is dressed up as something that's fun for the people who are actually giving it to you so they get more tailored services. Yeah, and, and I think that we're we're at The Sun less than a year into being a subscription online business. And, and one of the, the lessons I've had since I've been there for so nine months is that metrics are everything. And they constantly need to be improved. So when you try something, you really do have a proper sense of, of who your audience is, how they respond to it, who is ignoring it, who is taking part to it. And, and then you learn from it. Learning from mistakes as you're developing something is absolutely critical, I think. 
there's something called Core 4, which is a, a smaller four. data set. Yeah, Core 4, 4, <laughs> uh, which is a smaller data set of 10,000 people. Um, and they use this to get feedback on program titles. I'd like to hear a bit more creative vision here. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, um, research is fine, but you cannot ask people about new stuff because they've got nothing upon which to judge it. You've got to make a decision. You, you know, your job as a creative head is to say, I think this is great. Let's go and make it. And then you can market it to people. But ultimately, you've got to make a decision. You cannot research the arse of everything you do. Uh, and I think this is actually crazy. I think he absolutely should say, this is the job of my executive team, my creative team. You know, we will decide what is good and we're going to make it. Well, let's put your uh, scepticism to the test here now, Paul, as we play an exciting quiz. Uh, because uh, David Abrams been telling delegates that uh, viewers are asked using the Core 4 service, for how many people do you think will watch this programme? And then when the programme comes out, the person who guessed the nearest by millions wins a prize. Oh, what's the prize? Uh, Today it's going to be a cream egg. Uh, We're doing a a smaller version here. Melty. Melty cream egg. (laughs) So, with that in mind... yeah, Don't don't joke around, the heat's on now. I think we're all aware this is a serious business. I'm going to give you some programmes from this week. You need to tell me how many millions watched it, the person who is the closest gets the cream egg, across all three. The finale to Happy Valley on BBC One. Uh, let's keep this democratic. We'll go with Paul first this time and, and then Stig and then Fair. we'll reverse it next time. In whole yeah. millions. Uh, no, you've got to guess a, a point as well. All right. 3.5. 3.5. Do we hear higher or lower from you, Stig? I'm going to go higher. I'm going to go higher. Would you like to name a figure? I'm going to go 4.2. 4.2. The correct answer is 6.2 million. Ooh. You were right to go higher. So Stig higher. was, Stig was uh, closer. But both of you, I mean, two million off there, Stig. Happy, happy Valley, big deal, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so Stig first this time. The Secret Life of Cats on ITV. Are you allowed to say when this happened? When, what, what, when it was the slot it was on? Uh, because I don't have that information at my fingertips, no. so I'm going to make an executive decision to say no. no. Is it prime time? Prime this was time. 8 or 9 o'clock. It was, a, it was a big show, I wasn't it? Yeah. it. Secret yeah. Life, yeah. Yeah. All right. ITV at that time of night. Yeah. 7.1 million. 7.1 million. I'm laughing. I'm giving it away. <laughs> Higher or lower, Paul? Uh, lower, 6.5. This is an embarrassment to everyone involved. Yes. The correct answer is 2.5 million. What? Oh, so my goodness. Paul it, wins, it, but it again, was that was... Was cats, it? Cats. Yeah, it was uh, you would think cats were Cats on prime time. I know. Well, can, I, can I say something? At the time, we did a, a, a competition called Pup Idol, which was mm-hmm. for people to send uh, their pictures of the best, the cutest uh, dogs. It did really well. So we followed up with Kittens Got Talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and <laughs> Good work. it didn't do as well as Pup Idol. So clearly, we're a nation of dog lovers, not cat lovers. And this ITV show appears to be further proof of that, which requires further investigation. This podcast has been worthwhile after all. <laughs> yeah. Does it appear to be further proof, though? Is oh, the real question. Yeah. That's why you're no. on yeah, I mean, it's obvious that uh, people don't like cats. You only need to look at the internet for evidence of that. Exactly. And now the decider. It's one all so far. Sky Atlantic, 9 p.m., yeah. Game of Thrones. Oh, See, now that's tough, isn't it? Because you think, first of all, you think Sky Atlantic, meh, 9 p.m., mm, Game of Thrones, ooh, mm. tricky. I've got, I've got a figure in my mind, actually. 800,000. 800,000, says Paul. Stig, higher or lower? I'm going low. I had a, I, uh, 400,000 came to my mind. And the victor today is Paul. Oh. Game of Thrones, 950,000 viewers at 9pm. Good, for, good, for, yeah, good for, Sky for Sky Atlantic, Atlantic as well. Yeah, we'd take that. Yeah, well uh, done. So uh, Paul is the winner. You get the cream egg. Congratulations. 
And do you have to provide a cream egg for next week? Uh, There's going to be a crowdfunding campaign. Everyone's going to uh, provide different types of Cadbury products. Well, we are not going to beat that high. I think it is fair to say. I think we'd better end the show whilst we can. My thanks to Paul Robinson and to Mr. Stick Abel. I've been Ollie Mann. The producer has been Matt Hill. Come back next week. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 